0: this week on the Back Table Podcast.
1: I think that what's really exciting in IR is we're starting to understand the biology of what our treatments are doing to uh, cancer cells and HCC in particular, and understanding that our therapies are, are not just about the treatment we administer at that moment. It, it's about more than that. What we're doing is we're changing the microenvironment within these tumors, and that's a really unique tool. As we learn more about cancer metabolism, you're seeing more and more is the concept that cancer cells can undergo metabolic reprogramming. And th- that metabolic reprogramming, in some senses, can offer a real opportunity because it can generate dependency on targetable molecular
0: pathways. Welcome to the Back Table Podcast, which is committed to all things IR and endovascular. This is Michael Barraza, returning as your host, recording today in Baton Rouge. If you're a new listener, welcome. To our regular listeners, welcome back, and thank you for listening. You can find all previous episodes on Spotify, iTunes, or pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please check out our new web app and, and let us know what we can do to make it more useful to you wherever you are in your career. Before we get to today's topic, I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Trisalus. Trisalus Life Sciences is dedicated to improving patient outcomes in HCC and other highly intractable solid tumors. Trisalus infusion systems have the potential to deliver diagnostic therapeutic agents and immunostimulants directly in the tumor vasculature powered by its proprietary pressure enabled drug delivery approach with smart valve technology to improve the distribution and penetration of therapy in solid tumors. Today, we're going to be talking about the tumor microenvironment in HCC, and I'm thrilled to welcome back our guest, uh, Dr. Terrence Gade from the University of Pennsylvania. Terrence, thanks for coming back on the show.
1: It's a real pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, Mike. I'm I'm a big fan of of Backtable,
0: and so it's a real pleasure to join you. I nice calling you Terrence, uh, instead of Dr. Gay, I did when I was a fellow. But anyway, I'm clearly biased having trained at Penn, but there seems to be a lot of exciting data still coming out of Piggy Lab. And I know I've talked about it on here with both you and, and Stephen Hunt, but I want to do it again. And so now that I'm three years out from fellowship, I can finally admit that I was, I was pretty jealous of the residents that got to be part of your groundbreaking lab from the outset of training. Can you tell our listeners about Piggy Lab, how it's evolved and, and some of the stuff you're working on now? Absolutely. So the Penn Image Interventions Lab really started when Stephen Hunt,
1: Greg Vandalski, and I were residents together. We were the same year, and both or all three of us shared a passion for IR and IR research. And so we came together around that and around some of our ideas, really focusing on the interventional oncology space, but also some dialysis work. We started to generate projects, started to acquire some grants, had some really great mentorship from the Penn IR section, the real field leaders like Michael Solon, Scott Charatola, Bill Saropoulos, just to name a few, but also from our department chair, Schnall, who really believed in the concept of growing IR research and um, developing it from the ground up. So at that point, we really were uh, lucky that we all managed to find jobs at Penn, three graces of Mitch and Scott. And and at that point, Mitch really gave us an opportunity by giving us space and and a home. And uh, the chair of cancer biology gave us within the cancer biology department, which has been, been a big part of our growth yeah. um, because we really learned a lot from those basic scientists and being in that environment. And then I think the other sort of fortunate occurrence for us was the fact that IR has become so popular and we're really seeing the best and the brightest minds uh, come to IR. And our lab has grown along with the trainees and the people who we've had the fortune uh, to work with. And at this point, we're we're about uh, six to 10 people strong. We've got two lab spaces. We're working pretty much uh, at the, on the basic science here at the white bench all the way up through clinical trials. We're really excited about some of the data that we're coming out with and we're excited uh, that, about the track that IR science is taking and how it's really uh, demonstrating the power of what we do, not only within IR,
0: but really more broadly to other fields as well. It, it's cool seeing some of the more recent papers. I'm seeing some of the names on there. Some of the better medical students that I worked with when I was a fellow. Like I saw Julia D'Souza's name on there. She was a star when I was a fellow. And, and just some of the the names that I knew from training. And we've got Brian Park coming to talk with us pretty soon about the study that you did with him on augmented and mixed reality. It, it's a pretty mixed bag of exciting stuff you guys have, have been working on. Anything else in particular you guys are working on that we should be seeing in the near future?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we've been working, you brought up Brian and and some of that work as well. It's, it's always, IR is such a diverse space really. And uh, there are so many different aspects of what we do that bring in different fields. We're constantly working in the bioengineering space, working in the computer science space. We're working in the molecular biology space. We're working in the molecular imaging space. And it's often a challenge to look at all the things we're doing. And, and some of the people in the, in the lab are, in their sphere working on their their projects and are sort of like a ah, lab meeting. We're here about all these different things. There's AR, there's gene therapy, there's all kinds of things going on. How does this really come together around IR? And that's one of the things I love about IR is that all of these things will be brought to bear a lot of what Brian has done in terms of the augmented reality space. We really envision leveraging to bring in some of the molecular imaging stuff we've been doing, I think we'll talk about a little later. Yeah bring that into the room, allow that to inform us in terms of the therapies we're, we're administering or the procedures we're doing. And I think what you'll see and what I hope we'll see in the next, let's say, long-term, five years, 10 years, is you'll start to see the integration of a lot of those different papers that you might say, hey, this, why are you doing work in all these different areas that'll come together? I think in the near term, we have some exciting work coming out about the immune response after local regional therapies that we're we're really excited to get out there as well as some of our precision medicine work that
0: that should be coming out in the next year or so. I'm actually really glad you, you brought that up about how all that's going to be integrated together because Terrence, I do a good bit of prep for these and I did a literature review to prep for today and I was really struck by both the sheer volume and diversity of data you've published in the last few years on an incredibly wide variety of topics, both <laughs> oncologic and otherwise. And obviously, any topic we discuss would obviously only cover a small subset of your research efforts. It's good that you have a little time right now being on quarantine for COVID to catch up on some of that. Focusing on HCC, that's a topic you've had a pretty consistent hand in for a while at and honestly, virtually all levels from the molecular to the clinical. But for the med students and trainees, um, how is HCC unique relative to other primary malignancies in terms of behavior, treatment, and response to therapy?
1: Yeah, absolutely. HCC is unique. I, I would I would go go on to say that all cancers are unique, and I think we're understanding a lot more about that. And I think that the fact that HCC and all cancers are unique really underscore the importance of developing representative models. HCC in particular, obviously, develops usually in the background of cirrhosis, so it's somewhat unique in the sense that um, it develops in a diseased tissue, um, and that certainly has to inform how we think about it. And we know that's important for how HCC responds to to treatments, both systemic therapies that are targeted, but also immune therapies. We know that the erotic microenvironment changes that immune microenvironment. We also know that the genetics of HEC are a little more heterogeneous than most cancers. So the only consistent mutation that we see in more than 50% of patients with HEC are promoter mutations. We know that there are beta t mutations, there are P53 mutations, but those are less vicarious than we might see in other cancers. Where genetic drivers are are more consistent both within
0: patients and across patients. Right on. And again, uh, keeping this basic for a second, why is it with HCC compared to other malignancies are we spending so much time in the discussion focusing on recurrence?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think we know that most HCC patients are going to be diagnosed with unresectable disease, so that automatically puts them in the realm of what would largely be considered palliative therapies and. Any systemic therapy, truly, for the most part, still, in best cases, will turn cancer into a a chronic condition. That's what we're after at this point. And the challenge of really making that next leap from from chronic disease to cure is challenged by the fact that cancer is general, so intractable, is capable of mutating, capable of resistance. And so we know that when we apply therapies on some level, we're really only applying uh, uh, a selection uh, bias in the sense that we're selecting for cells that are not going to respond to that therapy, and what we're starting to learn about hcc in particular is that it and for most cancers i'd say is that it's going to really take a a sort of multiplexed approach to treatment so we're gonna we know that our local regional therapies are very effective but to really make that leap from that chronic disease to cure we're really gonna have to understand how those uh, treatment resistant cells are surviving in those microenvironments and what are the ways that we can leverage the microenvironments we're creating
0: to affect those cures. And I'm, again, I'm, I'm glad you brought it up that way because the last time we talked about this, I think I, I did a, a poor job of appropriately framing the discussion that it captures the information that makes this relevant for IRs and different types of, of careers. And I think I really just jumped into the more technical stuff But I wanted to find a way to to start by approaching the topic broadly. And one of the things I thought might help with that would be to use a couple of your publications as a springboard under the topic of tumor microenvironment and metabolism. And so one of the things I wanted to ask you about first was a paper that uh, you published in March of 2019 in JVIR. It was titled The Association of Complete Radiologic and Pathologic Response Following Local Regional Therapy Before Liver Transplantation with Long-Term Outcomes of HCC. It was a retrospective study. Could you tell us about, you know, what, what you guys looked at, what you guys found, it, and why this is relevant to the topic of tumor microenvironment?
1: Yeah, absolutely. That study was published. It really work done by Payman habib who's who uh, uh, was one of our trainees at that time, is now in attending. Oh, yeah. I remember Payman. Uh, yeah, he's a force. <laughs> and, and really spearheaded by Greg Gendalski as well. And we were really looking, trying to understand, as many people have before us, what is that RADPATH correlation following taste and other local regional therapy? How well do we do in terms of our follow-up imaging in assessing the response to the therapies we've administered? And that's always a challenge because of the fact that the majority of patients who are diagnosed with HEC and the majority of patients that IRs treat are have incurable disease that's never, that, and they're not going to undergo surgery. By definition, they're unresectable. But we really wanted to go back to identify a patient population in which we could acquire tissue on a consistent basis and really make those direct comparisons. And we went back and we looked, we have a strong pathology department at Penn, obviously, and in particular Beth Firth, among others in the hepatozoidary section have been just tremendous collaborators in facilitating our research, and they really helped us go back, collect those tissues and start to take a complete look at what does, you know, the pathologic response to taste look like um, and compare that to what we saw in cross-sectional imaging consistent with other studies, what we found really is that that they're not consistent. We we were seeing that in in more than half of cases in those patients where we identified a complete response on uh, cross-sectional imaging uh, follow-up, we weren't seeing complete responses on pathology. So um, right there, we know there's that disconnect. And obviously that's really important because we're missing opportunities if we're assessing patients as having a complete response on our imaging and they're not. And you might say, what opportunity we're we really missing? We we of took our best shot at that cancer and, and we didn't get it. Why do Why should we think that we're going to be able to go back in there and do anything more significant? And I think that what's really exciting in IR is we're starting to understand the biology of what our treatments are doing to uh, cancer cells and HCC in particular, and understanding that our therapies are, are not just about the treatment we administer at that moment. It, it's about more than that. What we're doing is we're generating or, we're changing a microenvironment within these tumors, and that's a really unique tool. As we learn more about cancer metabolism, what you're seeing more and more is the concept that cancer cells can undergo metabolic reprogramming. And th- that metabolic reprogramming in some senses can offer a real opportunity because it can generate dependency on targetable molecular pathways. and that paper, really, we wanted to look at what we were getting clinically to underscore some of the work we've done, been doing on the basic science realm. And one of the papers we had published in 2017, Radiology, really looked at what does that metabolic reprogramming look like? Or what do those dependencies look like? And how can we use things like local regional therapy to generate those dependencies and then leverage them to kill more cancer cells? And so I think that while recurrence has been looked at as a major limitation to taste, and, and certainly it is on some level. It also represents an opportunity because we change that microenvironment. Once we know what those dependencies are for those cancer cells, that means we can then go back in there and we can really, theory, finish them off. I think it also underscores one of the real benefits of local regional therapies and one of the unique ways we can interact with that tumor microenvironment.
0: You bring up reprogramming, and it gives me an opportunity to talk about another one of your papers, a more recent one that came out in Hepatology, um, published in July. It was the Hyperpolarized Metabolic Imaging Detects, Latent HCC Domains, Surviving Local Regional Therapy. What did you guys learn from this study?
1: Yeah, so that's a study we're really excited about. I've been working on that. Yeah, before. really cool. And uh, really was spearheaded by a number of people. I definitely want to recognize Nick Percon's who, in keeping with that theme of of really talented trainees coming up through the ranks. Nick was our first MD PhD student in the lab and did his graduate work. And and I'm really excited about the things he's gonna do. But we had been studying this this, uh, latent cell population that we kept seeing uh, in vitro and in vivo and even a clinical level that survives that, that initial insult from the ischemia we induced with taste. And we really, again, wanted to go back and understand different aspects of those cells. What happens to them? Why are they different than other cancer cells? What are, what are the metabolic reprogramming they're undergoing so that we could leverage um, that reprogramming both from a therapeutic perspective, but also to address the challenge of being able to identify them by through novel molecular imaging paradigms. And what we had done initially was we we had used our rat model. we used some of our in vitro models to expose these HEC cells to this ischemic microenvironment and then do some uh, metabolomic and proteomic profiling of these cells. And at first the hypothesis, they're different because they're not growing anymore. They're just hanging out there and nothing's happening. They have to be metabolically different. And the first studies we did were a little bit disappointing because they actually, they're quiescent cells. They're not doing anything actually. They're not like cancer cells that need to make proteins and lipids and nucleotides so that they can grow. They're just cells that are just trying to survive. So they're not making much of anything. So initially it seemed like a bit of a dead end. But when we started to look at the proteins that they were making, it turns out that they were reprogramming their metabolism to emphasize glycolytic flux towards lactate. Basically, they're trying to take glucose and instead of taking that glucose and making all those macromolecules that typical cancer cell needs to make in order to grow, they're just making lactate. And there, there can be a number of reasons for that. But once we identified, it really gave us an idea That maybe we can leverage that metabolic reprogramming, use it as a fingerprint to identify those cancer cells on imaging. And one of the, when people think about metabolic imaging, they typically think about uh, FDG PET for good reason. It's obviously the workhorse metabolic imaging, functional imaging strategy in oncology. But a, an emerging technology is, is, is hyperpolarized MR, and that's not getting too much into the weeds of it. it, it it's a technology that allows you to transfer the spin angular momentum of an electron to a nucleus. Mm-hmm. And so what it really means functionally is that all of a sudden you can see carbon-13 labeled molecules in real time. And that means you can actually image whatever substrate you've injected, but also you'll image, every, in theory, everything that comes out of that substrate. And so now you have a way to really image metabolic flux. And we leverage that technology in combination with our rat models, ask the question, can we do better? Can we detect cell populations that survive the ischemia that's induced by taste using this technology? And we're really excited about it because it turns out that the level hyperpolarized MR actually be, becomes more sensitive, that contrast enhanced MR with gadolinium for uptake of the um, primary tracer. So that tells us a lot about blood flow and that blood flow correlates with viability as we showed. And then also it tells us about the metabolic reprogramming itself. So this is one of the things that I think is important in IR for us to really develop imaging strategies that are specific to our therapies. And this is, is one of those, I think, because of the fact that we can actually identify that reprogramming I talked about. We can identify regions of that tumor where those cells are reprogrammed to shunt that glucose. And that allows us to detect the cellular domains that are surviving. But the other thing we're really excited about is that it gives us additional information. It gives us information about the, the status of those cells and may inform therapy. Because I just mentioned that we know that cells that survive that ischemia, they're dependent on other molecular pathways like autophagy. Mm-hmm. So, so the idea that if we can identify those, that reprogramming, then I can say, oh, there's a cell population that's dependent on this molecular pathway. And now it tells me what drug I should be using to treat those cells. It's a situation where we now think that this imaging technology can not only enhance our sensitivity and improve the specificity of response, but also
0: tells us what drug we need to use the next yeah. time we want to treat that patient. You can find recurrence early and feasibly in the future, be able to you know, more appropriately treat it. So is that the next step for studying these cells is just seeing how they respond to different therapies? Yeah. So we're, um, we're deep into that. We have a ex- drug that we're really excited
1: about that we're working with. Awesome. Some preliminary data that's really super exciting. I don't want to talk too much about no, it, no, no no no, yeah, I get it. And my lab always tells me I, I get a little too optimistic but yeah. um, but but we're also starting working on clinical trials to look at autophagy inhibitors in the context of taste, and we're really excited
0: about that as well. Yeah. That the ground. It's exciting stuff. Uh, are you guys still doing much work with the patient derived xenografts? Like, and are you still taking um, samples for most of the patients that you're treating? yeah, yeah we we've continued that we're rolled
1: our we have about 50 patients now enrolled in that study, Wow, uh, which has provided a, really, a lot of really exciting data, looking at some surprising data that's coming out, or we hope will come out pretty soon, looking at biopsies in these patients. Really interesting stuff. But more, I think, more cutting edge is the fact that we've been able to develop patient-derived xenografts. We've been able to derive patient-derived cell lines that are allowing us to really assess on a granular level, what are the genetic mutations? What are the metabolic alterations we see in HCC. Both pre and post haste, but also trying to apply precision medicine paradigms where we're testing over 2000 drugs on, wow. on individual patients to really get a sense of correlations between the genetics and the, and the pharmacologic response. But can we really implement a paradigm where we're taking individual patient cells and identifying the best drug on a patient by patient basis? And I think I've probably heard me say this before, but I think IR is really uniquely positioned to play a lead role in precision
0: medicine. And I think we're going to see that moving forward. That's exciting. That's going to be really fun to compare these different genographs from patient to patient. It, it's, you know, really exciting to be able to maybe get to the point where we're doing very specific treatments from one to the other, but also seeing, look at these different surviving and changing cell populations to see what kind of trends you're seeing across different patients.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I, I think the more we look, the more heterogeneity we see and I think that a lot of the technologies that we're going to see coming out are really being used now and we're trying to apply like single cell technologies are going to be the key to, to really understanding that heterogeneity and understanding its implications for how we use our therapies. And, and I think that the, the, there's a growing interest in IR research and we see a lot of great labs across the country that, are, that have been growing along with our lab and, and even before us. And I think we're going to start seeing our ability to leverage that data increase and the lag time that we've seen in terms of getting into the clinic
0: now has happened. And I think we're going to start seeing clinical trials that leverage that data as well. Totally. And and they're all pretty much based on the superior quality biopsies that I got as a fellow that a lot of this research (laughs) is is founded upon. A lot has happened in the last two years since we've talked about this. Is there anything else like any other uh, literature in the last couple of years that has really changed the way you look at this?
1: Yeah, I think that I think that if you look at some of the catheter technologies, for sure, that are coming out, we've been really excited about the concept of pressure-enhanced delivery. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're getting into that on a pretty significant level because I think really one of the things we know, and this, this transcends IR, it's really a, a challenge in oncology, and that's drug delivery. As the drug delivery maven on some level, I think it's really incumbent on us to figure out how to overcome intrinsic barriers to drug delivery. Some work I did as a graduate student that I was really excited about, spent a lot of time thinking about what that microenvironment looks like and what those barriers to drug delivery are. And I think we're starting to see people think in a similar fashion uh, about that and developing those catheters that allow us to overcome the elevated hydrostatic and interstitial fluid pressures we see in tumors. Direct delivery approaches that we were starting to see grow and grow are going to be a big part of that. I just saw a really exciting paper come out. Just this month, out of MD Anderson with uh, Rahul Sheth and Alda Tam, looking at direct delivery of immunomodulators in different cancers. I think we're going to see that grow more and more. And I think even at the at every level, we're going to we're going to be asked to inject these different immunomodulators. Yeah, I think that one of the things that a lot of labs are focusing on. I think is going to really be the next big step for us is understanding how our therapies and how our approaches can best be leveraged to, to enhance immunomodulation. I think i have seen some good, great work come out of Brad Wood's lab. We've seen some work come out of Ronnie Averture's lab looking at that question. And I, I think we're starting to get a handle on it. And over the next set, few years, I think we're going to see a growing role for local regional therapies in combination with immunomodulators. And maybe the key, fingers crossed, to to really generating a more consistent response to that immunomodulation. We've seen exciting data coming out about HEC most recently in the New England Journal of Medicine, looking at combination therapy, systemic therapy with immunomodulation the and antivascular agents. And, and clearly that's going to change the way HEC is treated and Tezobev may well become, probably will become first-line therapy for patients with advanced disease. But where we, I think there's really a, a larger question for us as IR is how, how do local regional therapies factor into to modulating that? And we know that we can directly interact with the immune system in ways that other fields can't. So um, yeah. I'm really excited by the, the idea that our direct interaction with the immune system is going to allow us to realize some benefits that people um, you know, haven't been able to achieve before.
0: And it's exciting because, especially with some of the more recent developments that come out of your lab, we've got more interesting and uh, promising ways to look at this and evaluate response. Do you think molecular imaging, metabolic imaging is going to have a role for looking at this? Is, is an early way to evaluate it?
1: Yeah, we're very excited about that as well. There's been a lot of data about metabolic alterations within the tumor microenvironment and, and immune cells. And we've been looking into some of those changes to see if a metabolic imaging paradigm can inform us on that response. There's definitely a lot of really exciting imaging approaches that are being developed to look specifically at the immune response using nuclear medicine strategies. Yeah. So I, th- I think like you're you're mentioning... One of the big hurdles is going to be our ability to track that immune response and get a really um, consistent assessment, not just of what's happening systemically, but really what's happening with the immune response within the tumor itself. And a lot of those molecular immune strategies, whether they be antibody-based or uh, functional metabolic imaging-based, are going to play
0: a key role in realizing those benefits. Exciting stuff, exciting times. Uh, Terrence, am I missing anything else? Is there anything else that, you know, that we're seeing in the literature and in, in HCC that we should be looking at or, or anything else that's really needed in terms of optimizing therapy from a research standpoint?
1: Yeah, I, I think you're seeing a lot of the, the things in my mind, and then I think some of our research hopefully reflects this, is the, the complexity of HCC and the microenvironment. Um, we really... You're starting to see people characterizing and understanding the genetic heterogeneity we see, starting to understand the immune heterogeneity we see. But I think that the next step, I think, in IR is really to understand on a more consistent level what our therapies are doing and not just taste, but also ablation. We've seen some really yeah. exciting data coming out of uh, Mayo and Dave Woodrum and Dr. Thompson looking at radioembolization as well. Some exciting stuff going on uh, at Northwestern. So I think. The next few years are going to be really exciting because we're starting to identify really strong models of HEC that we can use to understand our therapies, and I think that's the real transformation. I think I'd say we've seen over the last five to ten years.
0: And it's, it's very exciting. I look forward to seeing what's coming out of your lab and everyone else's, and I think it's very promising. What we're seeing is options for treating what has, has been a very challenging disease. So, Terrence, I just want to thank you again for taking the time to do this and for all of your efforts that we are seeing come to fruition. I think that wraps everything up. I just, again, thank our sponsor, Trisalis, and thank you to our listeners, as always. See you guys next time. Thank you. Thanks.